and welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast all about remembering the lives and careers of actors who left us too soon. I'm your host, Audrey Cornell, and today I will be talking about Natalie Wood. If you type the name Natalie Wood into any search engine, YouTube, Google, Spotify, the top results that pop up are about her death. How old was she when she died? Who was responsible for her drowning? What was her net worth at the time of her death? But my question is, why do we have such a fixation on that aspect? Why not focus on her career that spanned over three decades? The wonderful mother she was to her two daughters. The awards she won for her performances. People seem to have forgotten the magnitude of her career and impact on film. Natalie was so much more than the tragic things that happened to her, and I want to present to you her full story. Natalia Natasha Zakarenko was born on July 20th, 1938 in San Francisco, California, to Maria, nicknamed Mud, and Nick, or Fod, Russian immigrants who came to California when they were young. Natasha already had a sister, Olga, who was 10 years older. Natasha was encouraged from an incredibly young age by her mother to get into show business. The family changed their last name to Gurdon and moved to Santa Rosa. Mud groomed three-year-old Natasha to be the perfect, most well-behaved child, ready for stardom. She said, God created her, but I invented her. Before Natasha was born, Mud went to see a fortune teller who told her that her second daughter was destined for stardom. The fortune teller also mentioned that she would die in deep, dark waters. Mud made sure to frighten Natasha with this fact, giving her a lifelong terror of any sort of water. She got her first part in a bit role in Irving Pitchell's 1943 film, Happy Land, in which she dropped an ice cream cone on the sidewalk. Pitchell was immediately taken with Natasha and promised to cast her in a later picture. He wrote letters back and forth with her, though technically it was Mudd who did the writing. Pitchell convinced the Gurdons to move to Los Angeles, where Mudd ruthlessly scouted out work for her daughter. Natasha got the chance to do a screen test for Pitchell, for a film called Tomorrow Lives Forever. Pitchell admitted her audition was quite poor and that he needed an actor who could cry on cue. Natasha was able to test again and right before she read her lines, Mud pulled a live butterfly out of a jar and ripped its wings off. Natasha was in hysterics but nailed the audition, getting the part. She was given the stage name Natalie Wood and was paid a salary of $100 a week. Natalie was cast as Margaret, an Austrian orphan who was adopted by Orson Welles' character, Dr. Kessler. Her hair was bleach blonde, and she took on an extremely realistic accent. She later said about acting as a child, My feelings were largely submerged. I'd been told to act, and I simply acted without question. Something in me obviously wanted to act. When I was told to do so, I cooperated and enjoyed it. Wells was impressed by Natalie's professionalism and called her a little pro. She would get her lines right on the first take, which earned her the nickname One Take Natalie. Her co-stars always remembered Natalie as being polite and professional, something which Mud had instilled in her essentially since birth. The problem was, she was never allowed to play with children her own age or spend time with anyone on set when she wasn't filming. Mud thought anyone who wasn't going to advance her daughter's career was a waste of time. But in the end, that prevented Natalie from developing the correct social skills, and she struggled to make friends. Her younger sister Svetlana, later known as Lana, was born in early 1947. 
Mud almost immediately neglected her newborn baby to focus on Natalie's career. She dumped the responsibility of raising the baby onto Olga, who had already dropped out of high school to take care of Natalie while her mother was in the hospital. Pitchell cast Natalie in his next project, The Bride Wore Boots, with Barbara Stanwyck, who became a mother figure to Natalie. Curiously, Natalie's future husband, Robert Wagner, had a relationship with Stanwyck just a few years later when they worked together on the film Titanic. The Bride Wore Boots was a flop, but it gave Natalie the chance to sign with Famous Artist Group, and her salary and her salary was raised to $150 a week, which is worth over $2,000 today. Mudd scrambled to get Natalie auditions for everything she could find, and now the seven-year-old was supporting her entire family. When she didn't get a part, Natalie said she felt awful, as if I had let everyone down. The family moved to Burbank, except for Olga, who stayed behind to finish high school. Natalie was soon cast in both The Big Heart, later renamed Miracle on 34th Street, and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. During her audition for Mrs. Muir, director Joseph L. Mankiewicz recalled asking her, Did you read the whole script or just your part? She answered, The whole script. I then asked her, How do you spell Mankiewicz? And she spelled it right, all the way down to the CZ. I told her she had the part. Natalie was extremely bright for her age and could easily memorize entire scripts. She found school too easy and was bored. To make matters worse, she was flown back and forth from New York City and Hollywood to work on both of the movies she was doing at the time. She even started filming a third movie, Scudda Ho, Scudda Hey, and suffered an identity crisis. I was playing so many parts, I had a hard time finding me, she later said. A close friend of Natalie's said, It was terrible for that kid. I don't know how she survived it. Being forced to cry, forced to laugh. Every night, the nightmares she would go through to learn lines, to have the mother on the edge of the bed pretending to be nice, and all she cared about is that Natalie delivered the lines perfectly, didn't screw up. For Natalie, that was such a big, big event, she would get her mother's approval. Natalie became incredibly close with her The Big Heart co-star, Maureen O'Hara, whom she nicknamed Mama Maureen. Her own mother was transferring fears and superstitions into Natalie, and would berate her if she missed a line or cue. Natalie said at this point in her life, she was always trying to please everyone. My parents, the director, the stars, the electricians. I was a very good little girl. That's what I want for Christmas. You mean a doll's house like this? No, a real house. If you're really Santa Claus, you can get it for me. And if you can't, you're only a nice man with a white beard like Mother said. Now, wait a minute, Susie. Just because every child can't get his wish, that doesn't mean there isn't a Santa Claus. That's what I thought you'd say. Fox signed Natalie to a seven-year contract, beginning at $800 a week and increasing to $3,300 a week by the seventh year. That's almost $40,000 in today's money. Mud got Fox to pay her for being the person responsible for answering Natalie's fan mail. Natalie starred in small roles throughout the late 1940s and early 50s, mainly playing the precocious younger sister. She appeared in films alongside Celeste Holm, Fred McMurray, James Stewart, Rock Hudson, and Betty Davis. 
A notable film for Natalie's future was The Green Promise, a 4-H propaganda piece in which Natalie played a girl who wants to join the club. There is a scene where she was supposed to walk across a bridge that collapses in a vicious storm after she makes it to the other side. But the operator accidentally triggered the bridge to give way while Natalie was still on it, causing her to break her wrist and almost drown. The actual moment remains in the final film. The director wouldn't allow anyone to help Natalie until the scene was over. Mud didn't take her to a doctor afterwards, another fear she instilled in Natalie, and the bone set crooked, causing a deep insecurity about her misshapen wrist. Natalie often covered it up with a large bangle or gaudy bracelet. As the years went by, Natalie gained more and more recognition from critics and Hollywood elite alike, while growing more and more dissatisfied with her mother and the way she was being treated by her. Mud prevented her daughter from dating any boys, telling her if she got pregnant, she would die. She gave her daughter a great fear towards sex and relationships, though it made Natalie even more rebellious. She was smitten with a classmate, Jimmy Williams, whom she dared to cut off one of her pigtails in class. He did, and Natalie felt like she had transformed from a child to a woman. She started dating 21-year-old actor Tom Irish, who was 8 years older than her. Mudd didn't have any problems with the age gap, as she thought Irish would be able to help advance Natalie's career. Natalie began attending Van Nuys High School in 1953 after skipping a year and spent a lot of time with Jimmy Williams. They often went to the ocean, and Williams said, We'd hold hands and walk the beach, and she'd let the water get on her feet, but she would not get in the water because she was afraid of drowning. He said she told him many times that drowning was the way she was going to die. Natalie and Jimmy became very close, and she would confide in him her deepest secrets and insecurities, namely how she felt uncomfortable about being the breadwinner for her family. Natalie started working on a TV show called Pride of the Family and became close friends with co-star Bobby Hyatt. The work itself bored her, and things were becoming tense between Mudd and Jimmy Williams. Bobby said that Mudd didn't want Natalie to lose her virginity until she decided who was going to get it. If Natalie was going to go to bed with somebody, she wanted to make it count. Natalie and Jimmy wanted to get married, but Mudd made them break up. Later, Natalie found the relationship between her and Warren Beatty's character in the film Slender in the Grass similar to what she experienced with Williams. During filming of The Silver Chalice, Natalie met Frank Sinatra, who was immediately taken with her. Mudd encouraged Natalie to start seeing the 38-year-old Sinatra, despite the fact that she was 15. Scott Marlowe, one of Natalie's later boyfriends, said Mudd was a pimp. Mudd sent Natalie over to a party at Sinatra's house, all by herself, and she soon became a regular at his events over that spring. Bobby Hyatt said, there was something fishy because her mother told her not to talk to anybody about it because she was underage. I knew something was going on because this was the first time Natalie ever told me she couldn't tell me something. They started to drift apart as Natalie was spending more time with the adult crowd in Hollywood. Despite acting like an adult, Natalie was very self-conscious and still a child at heart. Her family life was getting worse as Fod drank all day and was prone to violent outbursts. Natalie's sister Lana said she once saw him throw a record player at her. Pride of the Family wasn't renewed for a second season, so Natalie returned to high school. She was desperate to sign with agent Henry Wilson, who represented her childhood crush Robert Wagner, so she could meet and eventually marry him. Mudd was not happy with this, saying, I didn't want Natalie to meet this Robert Wagner. He was with Henry Wilson, and you know what that means. By that, Mudd meant all of Wilson's clients were gay or bisexual men that he had groomed into stars, 
including Tab Hunter, Anthony Perkins, and Rock Hudson. Natalia was tired of the carbon copy roles she had been playing and wanted to expand her range as an actor. She read the unfinished script for Rebel Without a Cause and knew immediately she needed to play the part of Judy. I felt exactly the way the girl did in the picture toward her parents. It was about a high school girl rebelling and was very close to home. It was really about my own life. She also said, I felt an instant communication with the role, an absolute necessity for playing it. I just had to have that part in order to express something inside of me that I had never felt before. It was a real gutty character part. I loved it. Natalie fought often with Mud about getting the part, which Mud thought was too controversial. She finally convinced her mother after threatening to run away and become an actual juvenile delinquent. Inside, Mud knew the film would help Natalie's career and transition her to more mature parts. You were a child actress, and I suppose it's a, there's a distinction between saying a child actress and a child star. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. w w you were more of an actress, I would think. Luckily, I yeah. think, yes. Because I think it, it must be terribly difficult to be a, a child star of the magnitude that, you know, somebody like Shirley Temple or mm -hmm. Margaret O'Brien, where you really are a household word. Yeah, there's almost no way you can I mean, it was hard enough for me to, to grow up. I mean, when I was 15 and, and was trying to play a part of a 15-year-old, they all said, oh, no, but, you know, you, you, you still got your pigtails and everything. And yeah. so I had to do several screen tests for a picture I did with James Dean. To, yeah. And I was exactly the right age, you know. Rebel was directed by Nicholas Ray, who started grooming Natalie when she was 16. He was 43, married, and had a son who was the same age as Natalie. Mud was fine with what was going on because she knew Ray would help advance her daughter's career. Natalie's friend, Marianne Brooks, said that she was very, very adoring of him because of his position, because of his experience. He was extremely different and charming and really knew his business, which she respected highly in a man. Natalie found Ray to be unique and intellectual and respectful of her mind and body. They would spend a lot of time in his bungalow in the Chateau Marmont. Mud made Natalie's sister Lana stake out the bungalow and report to her what she saw. Ray finally agreed to let Natalie do a screen test for Rebel Without a Cause alongside Hollywood newcomer Dennis Hopper, who had already been cast. It was filmed on the Warner Brothers backlot on a rainy night. Hopper said, the next day, she phoned and asked for a date. I was astonished. This was the 1950s, when girls who'd turned 16 only a few months earlier just didn't do things like that. Natalie was quite a, Natalie was quite a forward thinker and often pursued the men she was interested in. Natalie and Hopper became enamored with each other, spending a lot of time together. A friend noted that Hopper was in love with Natalie, but she just saw him as a friend. The two also became close with Rebel co-star Nick Adams and would get up to a lot of crazy hijinks. Some people thought Hopper and Adams were just using Natalie to help further their careers, but it's hard to say. All of her friends had conflicting views on the two. Ray was unsure if Natalie was right for the part of Judy after watching her screen test, thinking she was too thin and her voice much too childish. He considered actors like Debbie Reynolds, Jane Mansfield, Carol Baker, and Lee Remick. Natalie was worried as she desperately wanted to get the part. The next few minutes contained descriptions of rape, so if this is a triggering subject for you, please skip ahead to 1705. Around this time, Natalie was raped by a powerful Hollywood star, long believed to be Kirk Douglas. She was invited by a powerful Hollywood figure into his hotel room to read for a part, which had been a ruse all along to get her alone. Lana later said on a podcast, 
We drove her up to the Chateau Marmont, and my mother and I sat in the car for hours, to the point where I went to sleep, and that was the interview where Natalie was raped. I was asleep in the back seat, and I just remembered it was not a happy ride home. I thought I heard Natalie and my mom talking heatedly in undertones. This means that the attack lasted for several hours. Natalie was injured so badly that she couldn't stop bleeding. She had to be sent to the hospital. Natalie confided in her friends Marianne Brooks and Dennis Hopper, and later her boyfriend Scott Marlowe, about what had happened. Mud could not have cared less. Brooks said that Mud thought it was great. She prevented Natalie from calling the police and used the incident as a way to scare her into never having sex again. Natalie had to see this man many times over the years, always putting on a smiling face. Some of her friends said that Natalie became sexually reckless after the rape. Along with her fears about getting pregnant, she also hated being alone and had severe insomnia. She started taking pills to help her get to sleep. One night, a very drunk Natalie Hopper and friend Jackie Eastis got into a car accident and were sent to the hospital. They called Nicholas Ray to be their spokesperson. When Natalie saw him, she grabbed him and whispered, Nick, they call me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? And indeed, she did. Rebel Without a Cause starred James Dean, whom Natalie had previously worked with on a TV episode called I'm a Fool. Sal Minio also had a role, and the three of them became very close friends. Filming began in March of 1955. Natalie was immediately enamored with James Dean. Sal Minio said, he was all she could talk about. Every night, for weeks in a row, she went to see East of Eden. She must have seen it over 50 times. She even taught me to play the theme song from the picture on the piano. Dean liked to tease Natalie and distract her while she was filming her scenes. Her friend Beverly Long said, I think she was a little scared of him. He was extraordinary as an actor, but he was very weird as a person. Working with Jimmy was quite a feat because he would behave so badly sometimes, and it was hard, I think, with her to get close to him. Natalie was incredibly professional and amazed everyone on set. The only issue she had was the scene where she cries in the police station. She had a panic attack in her dressing room, saying she couldn't do it. Finally, she decided to rub Vicks in her eyes, which was how she managed to cry in the scene. He grabbed my face. He started rubbing off all the lipstick. I thought he'd rub off my lips. And I ran out of that house. Is that why you were wandering around at one o'clock in the morning? <laughs> Weren't looking for company, were you? I don't even know why I do it. Maybe you think you can get back at your dad that way. I mean, if you're not as close to him as you'd like to be, maybe this is one way of making him pay attention. Did you ever think of that? I'll never get close to anybody. Natalie's relationship with Ray was a well-known secret among the cast. When Natalie's parents showed up to set while they were filming one day, Ray said that it was Dennis Hopper who was having the affair with Natalie, which Mud was not happy about. Hopper said, I realized that I could be expendable in Nick Ray's world, and he could blame me and get off. He challenged Ray to a fight, which ended up getting all his lines cut from the film. While having sexual relations with her director and getting into trouble with Hopper and Adams, yep, Natalie was simultaneously posing for teen magazines as a lovable sweetheart. Her publicist would set her up on fake dates to create a perfect image for the fans. One of her dates was with actor Ben Cooper, who thought Natalie was a terrifically nice, sweet person. 
He thought that the people she was hanging around with were manipulating and controlling her, and that she would do just about anything at any time. Here she was, a fabulous actress, just incredibly good from the time she was a child. And it seemed that she needed more, and was allowing herself to be used by this group of guys, as if that was her acceptance. I felt that she felt she had to go along with whatever they wanted. Natalie's closest friends saw her rebellion as a way of separating herself from her mother and becoming her own person, though it wasn't as productive as she probably intended for it to be. Beverly Long observed that Natalie always had to be around people, especially older men. Ray cut things off during filming of Rebel after Natalie had a pregnancy scare and his drinking problem worsened. Natalie became even closer with James Dean after he broke up with his girlfriend, actress Pierre Angeli who had recently gotten married to singer Vic Damone at her mother's insistence. It was something neither Dean nor Angela got over, and Natalie was often there for Dean to share his feelings with. He was very aware of the fact that he was a star. There was no escaping it. I mean, eyes were, were on him. And I remember when we did a television show before we did Rebel, and we used to go to lunch on, on his motorcycle to a nearby hamburger joint. and. Um, he used to be fascinated with the stories that were being written about him in the movie magazines, you know. So a, lot of, a lot of them were about his love affair with Pierangeli, and he would, he would read them. He wouldn't buy them, but he would be fascinated. Natalie graduated high school in the spring of 1955 and almost immediately began filming her next movie, The Searchers. The movie was mostly filmed in Monument Valley, Utah, and the only other person Natalie's age was co-star John Wayne's son, Patrick. They became very close and often played cards and scrabble together. Wayne said, We didn't really have to fake being in the frontier. We were living in it. So you were really looking anywhere for any kind of amusement. There were no movies. There was no radio. There was no television. There was nothing. When I was working on that picture, uh, it was a difficult location. It was in the Monument Valley. And we were on an Indian reservation. And there were no other young people. I was the only young person around. And, uh, you know, they had the sort of John Ford Road Company, and so they played poker every night. And, it, you know, for a teenager, it wasn't really the greatest. And of all the people, I think John Wayne was the most um, aware of that and, and very kind about it, you know, and uh, he was a terrific fellow. However, Natalie disliked working with director John Ford and felt she was miscast in the part of Debbie, a young woman who is kidnapped by a Comanche tribe and must be saved by her father, played by John Wayne. Natalie was cast in a TV production called Heidi. The night before filming began, she was having dinner with Richard Davalos, Nick Adams, and Sal Mineo, and they were all talking about James Dean. Natalie said, We were talking about what a great future he had, and how in a few years he'd be the greatest thing that ever hit Hollywood. Then Nick said he was sure Jimmy wouldn't live past 30, with all his rodeo riding and his racing. Natalie commented to the group, Jimmy's going to outlive every one of us at this table. The next morning, they learned that he had been killed in a car accident the night before. Rebel Without a Cause has since become thought of as cursed, since stars Dean, Minio, Wood, and Adams all died young, tragic deaths. Both the world and Natalie were crushed by Dean's death. Rebel Without a Cause premiered almost a month later, becoming a smash hit and rocketing its three leads into stardom. Natalie and Sal Minio were nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Actor, respectively. Natalie wanted to be taken seriously as an actor, saying, Stardom is only a byproduct of acting. I don't think being a movie star is a good enough reason for existing. I want to contribute something of myself. 
I feel that it's possible to be a star, yet be a good actor, like Brando, Clift, Eva Marie Saint. On the other hand, there are certain stars who are not actors. I don't want to be that type. If I didn't believe in what I'm doing, I'd rather go to work in a dime store. Lana said that Natalie was incredibly dedicated to her acting. Every day of her life, she never thought about doing something else. She thought of what she could do to be better. She would analyze her script and write notes in the margins, and she was very, very careful, very meticulous with all of her roles. She would get an idea of who that individual was long before she would start the film. Natalie started working on The Bee Noir, A Cry in the Night, about a teenager who was kidnapped by an obsessive older man. She began spending a lot of time with her co-star, Raymond Burr, who was 38 to her 17. Her friend, Jackie Eustis, said, It was the most devastating thing when she found that Raymond Burr was gay, and there was no way they were going to have an affair, because she tried her darndest. Many people thought Burr was using Natalie as a beard, or a way to hide his homosexuality. Warner Brothers was upset that Natalie was spending so much time with Burr, thinking their relationship would ruin both her career and the film. They were forced to end things, and Natalie was set up on publicity dates with Tab Hunter, whom she was starring with in two upcoming films, The Burning Hills and The Girl He Left Behind, which Natalie nicknamed The Girl with the Left Behind. Despite building a lasting friendship with Hunter, Natalie didn't like either film, considering them unchallenging for her as an actor. Why don't you let me drive you home? I don't have to be back till tomorrow. You dirty gringos! <laughs> You're no good! None of you! You drive decent people from Esperanza! You make a rat hole of this town! A scorpion's nest! Natalie started dating fellow actor Scott Marlowe, whose work she was very impressed by. He was involved with the Actors Studio in New York City, a style of acting that fascinated her. She was obsessed with getting the titular role in a film in the works called Marjorie Morningstar. Marlowe said, She was desperate to get anything that would further her. She had an incredible drive. I don't know if she picked it up from her mother or if it was forced on her, but she had an incredible sense of destiny and where she should be. Maud viewed Marlowe as a threat to her possession of Natalie, which he didn't mind as he thought Matt... He thought Mud was a bad mother. He thought Mud had prostituted Natalie as a child. Marlowe also encouraged Natalie to go to therapy, which enraged Mud. She opened all of Natalie's mail and had Nick Adams spy on Natalie, reporting back to her with what he saw and heard. Natalie and Marlowe decided to get married on Natalie's 18th birthday, which caused Mud to go into a frenzy. She spread lies about him to the press and enlisted Nick Adams to give interviews to fan magazines saying that Marlowe was only using Natalie to get into the spotlight. Warner Brothers forced Natalie to end things with him at the insistence of Mud. Marlowe said, The mother just messed it up. I was kind of a fort for Natalie. I just was there for her all the time. Natalie fired her manager, Henry Wilson, who she thought wasn't doing enough to get her the role she wanted. She went on a month-long press tour with Tab Hunter to promote their films and attended several classes at the actor's studio. She said that the method was similar to the way she had been acting all this time. Emotion memory is recalling something sad when you have a sad scene to do, and very early on I used to get myself in the right mood by thinking of a pet dog that died. Around this time, Natalie met Elvis Presley and began a brief fling with him. Presley, Nick Adams, and Natalie became almost a threesome, in Natalie's words. She spent a lot of time with Presley in Tennessee at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, along with his friends, the Memphis Mafia. 
Jackie Eastis said that Natalie told her Elvis was a polite, wonderful human being, but he was not what she wanted romantically. She thought Presley's straight-laced behaviors were fascinating. He didn't drink, he didn't swear, he didn't even smoke. I thought it was really wild. She visited him at his home in Graceland and allegedly called her family to say she wanted them to fake an emergency so she could go back home. Presley's friend, Lamar Fike, said that was a lie. Natalie really cared for Elvis. It just didn't work out. She just didn't like the whole setup, didn't like the guys around, which most girls didn't. Presley's mother Gladys disliked Natalie and thought she was just using her son for publicity purposes. Natalie started working on the film Bombers B-52 in December of 1956. She became close with co-star Carl Malden, who played her father in the film. The movie centers around an aging pilot who tries to prevent his daughter from dating a fellow co-pilot. Malden said that Natalie always came prepared, unlike most of the young contract stars at Warner's, and she worked very hard as well as having fun. We both liked the confrontational scene when she came home late from a date and really worked at it. You're glad Jim doesn't call anymore, aren't you? Aren't you? Look, Lois, now you know there isn't anything answer I wouldn't me, do for you. Answer me, Dad. Please. Please answer me. All right. Yes, I am glad. Why? What have you got against him? Nothing. Why do you hate him? I don't hate him. I just don't have any use for his kind. Why? Because he's because he's who he is? Oh, now, wait. Because he isn't afraid of responsibility? Oh, you're way off. Because he's important? Is that why? To me, my job is just as important. I'm a line chief, and I'm proud of line it. Line chief? Yes, a line chief. I'm working where I can do the most good, and Hurley, he would be the first to tell you that. Have you ever seen the insides of one of those ships? You know what we have to do every day, every day, to see that they stay up and that the crews are safe? Now, you get this once and for all, young lady. We've got to keep our ships and our crews combat ready. And when they're ready, no one will dare lay a hand or a bomb on us. Maybe someday that'll keep you and your, well, your children alive, if you ever have any children. Dad, you've been against Jim from the very beginning, and that's because he's important and you're not. You believe that? Yes! Natalie also liked that Malden had worked with director Elia Kazan, whom she greatly admired. She especially enjoyed the film A Streetcar Named Desire and was greatly inspired by Vivian Lee and her performance in the movie. Around this time, Natalie started seeing actor Robert R.J. Wagner, who was eight years her senior. A major hobby of his was sailing, which Natalie became used to. Her friend Judy Meredith said, I don't think it occurred to her that she would go in the water or go off the boat. R.J. always had a boat, and I don't think it would have occurred to her to say, No, this is not for me, because Nat was gung-ho for life. She finally got the role in Marjorie Morningstar, about a camp counselor who falls in love with an older man. She said the film shows the transition of a naive, wide-eyed girl into a mature woman with a real understanding of life. It was one of the earliest films to depict Judaism, though Natalie was not Jewish herself. Her screen partner was Gene Kelly, though the part was originally meant to be played by Paul Newman. Unfortunately, the final product didn't turn out the way Natalie wanted it to, telling her friend about the director. I'd rather spend my life in a crapper than do another picture with Irving Rapper. Did something happen between you last night? Oh, Mother, one doesn't discuss those things with people. I'm not people, I'm your mother. What's come over you lately? You act so, so... Oh, I don't know. I'm 18. I'm growing up. So you feel you should do things that grown-ups do, hmm? Is that wrong? It depends upon how you want to grow up. She quickly started working on King's Go Forth, about a French girl who is being sought after by two American soldiers. It was the first of three collaborations she did with Tony Curtis, 
and Frank Sinatra completed the love triangle. Many believe that Natalie had rekindled her relationship with Sinatra during filming. Today we have a visitor, an American. His name is Lieutenant... No, Captain Sam Loggins. In his honor, we shall sing a song. Faye Newell recalled that once when Wagner came to visit Natalie on set, he pulled Sinatra aside and said, If you ever hurt her, you'll have to answer to me. Wagner proposed to Natalie and they married on December 28, 1957. They took a boat to Miami for their honeymoon and were met with a typhoon. Wagner remembered that the boat was pitching like a wild horse. Dishes and glasses were crashing. All the furniture that wasn't nailed down was sliding from wall to wall. I was so worried about Nat. It was an awful ordeal for her. They decided to go to New York instead, staying at the Waldorf Towers. After returning from their honeymoon, the Wagners moved into RJ's apartment in Beverly Hills. Natalie said of her marriage, It was a mystery to me. I loved my husband. We were healthy. We were desirable, according to the press. But all I felt was torment. I was unable to make a decision of any kind. People had told me what to do all my life, and now I was expected to function as an adult woman. Mudd despised Wagner and referred to him as that faggot, even right in front of Natalie. She knew from the beginning that nothing good would come of their relationship. Many of Natalie's friends knew that Wagner was bisexual, but she didn't see any issue with it. Warner Brothers put her on suspension after she refused to do the film The Philadelphian, renamed The Young Philadelphians, starring Paul Newman. She went on a publicity tour with Wagner for his film In Love and War. Being out of work was incredibly difficult for Natalie, as acting was all she had known from a very young age. She spent most of her time with RJ on the boat or winning gin rummy games against Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. She finally got her contract back in early 1959. Natalie and studio head Jack Warner greatly disliked each other, but she said, When we were at parties, he was always very polite, and he'd say, Hello, Natalie, darling, how are you? And I'd say, Hello, Mr. Warner, how are you? On my birthday, he'd send me lovely flowers, and on his birthday, I'd send him a bottle of Jack Daniels. And meanwhile, the lawyers were saying that he was saying through to them, This child will only work over my dead body, blah, blah, blah. Natalie's interest was piqued by the upcoming film, Splendor in the Grass, and she knew that she wanted to play the main role of Deanie Loomis. Director Elia Kazan was looking at actresses like Diane Varsi, who had impressed him with her performance in Compulsion, and Jane Fonda. Wagner said, as well as always trying to screw Natalie and to screw her out of more money at the same time, Jack Warner also tried to stop her getting the part in Splendor, because she defied him by going out suspension all those months. It was Kazan's insistence that got her the part. Warner finally decided to allow Natalie to do Splendor if she first did the film Catch McCall opposite James Garner. The film was a success and the Wagners bought a house on North Beverly Drive. Despite agreeing before they married to never make a film together, they started working on All the Fine Young Cannibals, which was, quote-unquote, suggested by The Early Life of Chet Baker. All right, Samuel, you're next. Get out now, Timothy. You're all through. When you change the water? I'm changing the water. But the boys only get half clean water and half dirty. Brand new regulation. Papa says... You complain to Papa and I'll wring your scrawny little nap, Samuel. Aren't you going to heat the water? I heated it for Timothy. It wasn't so hot. It's heated. You want to scald yourself today? Mama heats it for real. Well, Mama is gone to the minister's funeral. Mama and Papa... And I'm in full charge. 
Now you just start scrubbing yourself. How come ministers die? They just do. Despite Mama and despite Papa. Well, why does God let them die? If they're the best people there are, Sarah. My name is not Sarah. Now I told you that. I changed it. It's Salome. While the Wagners became one of the hottest couples in Hollywood, Natalie started losing some of her friends. Barbara Gould, whom Natalie had met while in New York years before, ended the friendship and went back to NYC. Nick Adams was heavily into drugs and asked Natalie for a loan. When she refused to give it to him, he threatened to blackmail her. Steffi Skolsky, daughter of gossip columnist Sidney Skolsky, noticed that Natalie was distancing herself from her friends and becoming more Hollywood. She became incredibly anxious and started going to psychoanalysis, which Wagner was unhappy with, thinking that meant he was a failure as a husband. He started drinking very heavily, and the pair often had arguments that sometimes became violent. Natalie stopped drinking herself, other than the occasional glass of wine, but began taking a lot of pills. Her friends weren't too concerned about it. Faye Noel said, It was something people did then. It wasn't thought of as drugs in those days. That was all before the 60s drug culture. Natalie started working on Splendor in the Grass in mid-1960 in New York, which was doubling for 1920s Kansas. The film dealt with sexual repression and young lovers being torn apart by their families and societal pressure. Natalie's co-star was Warren Beatty in his first film. Despite playing love interests, the two despised each other. Natalie banned him from her dressing room and gave him the nickname Mental Anguish, later shortened to M.A. Everyone found him to be extremely arrogant and hard to work with. The crew even nicknamed him Donkey Dick. However, everyone got along well with Natalie, and she was incredibly, she was incredibly proud of her work in the film. RJ's contract was not renewed, so he found himself out of work and often spent time on the set. He was jealous of Beatty and Kazan, as Natalie's attention was mostly focused on them during filming. Beatty's fiancée, actress Joan Collins, also frequented the set and kept a close eye on Natalie. The Wagners' marriage was slowly starting to crumble, though they kept things looking perfect on the outside. Natalie was obsessed with perfectionism, feeling like she always had to be presentable, no matter what. She wouldn't leave the house without putting on a full face of makeup and her signature bracelet. Natalie thought her work on Splendor in the Grass was very good, and she finally felt like she had become an adult actress. However, Kazan used Natalie's relationship with Mud for the scenes with her movie mother. It was very draining for her, and another reason why she sometimes got very depressed. One of Natalie's most striking scenes of her career appears in this film, in which she has an angry outburst at her mother while in the bathtub. This was the only scene she ever filmed without wearing her safety blanket bracelet. I'm sorry I've troubled you. I didn't want to worry you. I didn't want to worry anyone. Is it all on account of, because of Bud? Because he doesn't call for you anymore? I don't know. I don't know, Mom. I have a mind to call that boy and tell him. Don't you dare! Don't you dare, Mom! Oh, don't oh, you oh, dare! Oh, don't you dare! Oh, I will... Hold on! Mom, if you do something like that, I'll do something desperate! Assistant director Don Cran said she broke wide open that day. That was her first day where she really hit the scene, and it was clear that she was just terrific. I know Kazan felt good that day. He felt the he felt that he had really hit something. 
anyone who really was thinking about the movie other than their paycheck saw something pretty good happening. Unfortunately, Kazan could be emotionally manipulative with Natalie. In one scene, her character attempts to kill herself by jumping off a cliff into a waterfall. She had to do the stunt herself, even though Kazan had previously told her that they would have a double do it. Kranz said, when Natalie had to get in that river, she was deadly afraid of the water. I mean, deadly. Strangely, it was a common occurrence for Natalie to get in the water for her films, and every time she would have a panic attack before, during, and after the scene. Everyone on set noticed this and would try their best to comfort her. Kazan seemed to use this fear in his favor. During filming of Splendor in the Grass, Natalie was offered the part of Maria in West Side Story, a musical inspired by Romeo and Juliet. She started taking singing lessons, but later on, unbeknownst to her, her voice was dubbed over by Marnie Nixon. Natalie's friend, actor Robert Blake, said, Natalie wanted to sing more than she wanted to breathe. She loved being a singer. When she found out that none of her singing would be going into the film, she was incredibly upset. Natalie recommended RJ for the part of Tony, her love interest in the film. Her offer was turned down, and the part went to Richard Bamer. He didn't think he was a good fit for the part either, saying, I was a country boy from Ohio, cast as a street smart New York, and I needed more character motivation from a director with more psychological insight than Robert Wise. All he ever told me was, walk faster, talk fast, pick up your cue faster, be more sincere, be more loving. And I knew Natalie didn't want me for the part. The two kept things cordial on set, although several years later, Natalie spotted him out in public and said hello, where they had a nice conversation, and Bama remembers her fondly. Rehearsals for West Side Story began in mid-August in Hollywood, which lasted 12 hours every day. Natalie had to catch up with the cast, most of whom were already professional dancers, and they disliked her because she was a movie star. Natalie became incredibly self-conscious and felt like she didn't fit in on set. Lana said that Natalie was miserable. She liked that entire process, but she just didn't get along too well other than that. It was very demanding. She was very concerned about the makeup, about the look, about people accepting her as Puerto Rican. How do you fire this gun, Gino? Just by pulling this little trigger? How many bullets are left, Chino? Enough for you? And you? All of you! You all killed him! And my brother! And Riff! Not with bullets and guns! With hate! Well, I can kill too. Because now I have hate! How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me. Director Robert Wise had one of the actors-slash-dancers, Tony Mordente, help Natalie practice her moves. He said he was nervous about it, as there were kids in the company who thought that Natalie was kind of a snob. But she was quite the opposite, very much the opposite. The two spent a lot of time together practicing the choreography, and Mordente began to understand how insecure Natalie felt about her place in the film. She practiced her Puerto Rican accent, often speaking in it throughout the day. He said she was always concerned that things were going to be exactly the way she wanted them. She wanted them to be perfect all the time. Bordente became close with RJ as well and saw that he was struggling with not having work. His ego was being a little bit tossed around because Natalie was peaking and he was sliding. Their problems stemmed from Natalie really driving to stardom and the possibility of winning an Academy Award, and RJ saying, where's my career going next? 
After filming wrapped, Natalie was sent to the hospital for a tonsillectomy and almost died from complications. She recovered after a couple weeks, and RJ finally got a part in a film called Sail a Crooked Ship. A few days after he finished filming, Natalie woke up in the middle of the night and found him missing from the bed. She went to look for him and found her husband having intimate relations with the butler, David Cavendish. Natalie went hysterical, breaking a glass on her hand. She ran to a neighbor's house, screaming and crying. Mud and Lana picked her up and drove her to their home, where she took a handful of sleeping pills and went into a coma. She was sent to the hospital and had her stomach pumped. Later, she told her friend that she wasn't trying to kill herself. The friend thought Natalie simply wanted to go to bed and needed a pill, but in her distress, accidentally took too many. During her separation from RJ, Natalie lost a lot of weight and didn't seem like herself. Her friend Marianne Brooks said, Her life was just a disaster, catastrophic levels. Her whole world went, her private world, her professional world, everything. It was just like somebody dropped a bomb. Natalie wrote in her unfinished autobiography that the moment was more than a final straw. It was reality crushing the fragile web of romantic fantasies with sledgehammer force. Natalie made everyone swear not to tell anyone else what had happened that night, still wanting to protect RJ's image. She told Mud that if she leaked it, she would never speak to her again and would cut off her salary, which Natalie provided. That kept Marie quiet. The Wagners separated, which came as a huge shock to everyone in Hollywood. Natalie started seeing Warren Beatty, who had recently broken off the engagement with Joan Collins. Gossip columnists and magazines started speculating that Warren had been the reason for the Wagners' divorce, but that was entirely untrue. It's most likely that Natalie took the brunt of the blame for the divorce to protect RJ's affair from getting out to the press. Splendor in the Grass and West Side Story were released in 1961, both smash successes. Natalie achieved her childhood dream of placing her hand and footprints into cement outside of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Her next goal was to place stripper Gypsy Rose Lee in the semi-biographical film Gypsy. This time, she finally got to sing, but she was nervous about playing a stripper as she felt, ze- as she felt very self-conscious about her body. Natalie was reunited with her Bombers B-52 co-star, Carl Malden, who said that Natalie was really scared stiff when she did the strip number. She was scared stiff that Gypsy Rose Lee was there and was going to tell her things and that she was having to strip. And I thought she was magnificent. Jillian, who played Natalie's character's younger sister, was in awe of Natalie, and the two really connected. She saw childlike qualities in Natalie, as well as the sadness behind her eyes. Jillian said, I would watch her when we started filming, and how she would put on her makeup. I was standing there one time watching her, and I felt the presence of a man come in, and I turned to the side, and I didn't know who he was, 
and he was watching the same thing I was. And I looked at him, and I said, She's so beautiful. And he said, Yes, she is. And I later realized that was Warren Beatty. In his 2008 memoir, Wagner wrote about seeing Natalie and Warren all over magazines and the media. Life magazine was calling Beatty the most exciting American male in movies. My last four or five pictures had been flops. I was hanging around outside his house with a gun, hoping he would walk out. I not only wanted to kill him, I was prepared to kill him. Everything was coming to an end. My marriage, my career, the life I had built. I remember thinking that if I couldn't kill Beatty, maybe I should kill myself. It was either flip out or flip the page. I chose the latter. Later in 1963, he married actress Marion Marshall. Gypsy was especially difficult for Natalie because many of the events mirrored her own life. Lana said, I think she had to come to grips that she was a used child star who missed out on a childhood. The resentment toward my mom for all the pushing and the long hours. Natalie and Beatty moved into a house on Benedict Canyon where they had a tumultuous relationship. 16-year-old Lana briefly moved in with them after secretly marrying and divorcing in Tijuana earlier that year. Natalie started preparing for a film called Love with the Proper Stranger, which dealt with an Italian-American girl getting an abortion, which was very controversial for its time. Listen, what time do you get off? Let's have a cup of coffee or something. Um, will you excuse me a minute? Well, what do you say? Shall I pick you up after? Oh, I can't tonight. Oh, yeah, all right. Well, uh, tomorrow then, okay? I'll uh, pick you up after or what? No, I can't tomorrow night either. Oh, well, what do you mean you can't? It's a cup of coffee. Well, I've got a date. With who? <laughs> well, what's funny? If I didn't know better, I'd swear you're my brother Dominic. Lana said Natalie loved the part and that it was one of those chances she got to show people that she could act. It was her first of seven collaborations with costume designer Edith Head, whom Natalie viewed as a mother figure. Her relationship with Beatty was on the rocks, and she set her sights on co-star Steve McQueen, who is currently married to Neil Adams. Adams said during the movie she'd do things like bump into him, or she'd see him on the street and she'd say, Hi, Stephen. But Neil never saw Natalie as the threat and said she was a very sweet and kind person. Natalie finally broke things off with Beatty, burning all of his clothes on her driveway. She was incredibly lonely, feeling like she had nobody to rely on. I remember the last day in love with the proper stranger. I was supposed to cry in my last scene, but I could not cry for the camera. Then during the rap party, I could not stop crying. Natalie received her third Academy nomination for her performance as Angie. Natalie moved into a house in Brentwood, where Mud and Nick would station themselves outside in a car and keep watch on who was coming and going. Natalie had begun to distance herself from her family at the insistence of her therapist. Her next picture was Sex and the Single Girl, based on Helen Gurley Brown's book of the same name. Co-star Tony Curtis said, Natalie always needed somebody, always needed somebody running her life. She became engaged to Arthur Lowe Jr., who is known for courting women who had just gone through a painful breakup. Debbie Reynolds said, He was a friend to all of us, and he loved women, and he loved to be your boyfriend without taking you to bed. He really wanted to hold your hand and be the gentleman. Tony Curtis raved about Natalie and found her to be an excellent screen partner. It was a wonderful dance. You can't get it better. We never stepped on each other. She always gave me my moments and vice versa. 
I'm very pleased. Oh, good. I'm very pleased at the way our doctor-patient relationship is progressing. Oh, how nice. Yes. Good. You must realize, of course, that this is simply a transference. You worship me, not because I'm attractive, but because, to your subconscious mind, I have become... Sylvia. No, 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 not Sylvia. To you, I have become a father figure. A father figure? That's right. Not a mother figure. Oh, no. <laughs> no, a father, father figure. And if you think I'm pretty... I do. A lot prettier than my father. That's only because... Do you really think I'm pretty? Doctor, I think you're very, very pretty. In fact, you're beautiful. He also observed that Natalie always had to be put together and prepared, her movie star persona on full display. She broke things off with Arthur Lowe Jr. and went into a deep depression. Natalie really wanted to have a child and constantly saw RJ around town with his new wife, Marion Marshall. Lana said she used to say that if she couldn't find anybody to marry and father this child that she so desperately wanted, she really wanted Gregory Peck to father the child. Natalie started filming The Great Race in June of 1964 with Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Peter Falk. I'm a female, past the age of consent. I was the first woman to edit the newspaper at my college. And I shall remain handcuffed to this door until I become the first female reporter of the New York Sentinel. Over my dead body. Unlock those handcuffs and get out. I will unlock the handcuffs when you give me the job. Never. 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 But, sir, if she remains here, handcuffed to the men's room, the men, the men... You men may use the washroom on the next floor. Oh, sir. They can't keep running upstairs forever. They can until you get hungry. Oh, that would make quite a story for your competition. Woman starves to death in the men's room of the New York Sentinel. She pretty much only did the film as she was promised the lead role in her passion project, Inside Daisy Clover. The Great Race was not a pleasant experience for her as she felt like director Blake Edwards was ignoring her to focus on other actors. And when he did turn his attention to her, it was to nitpick everything she did. When she learned that Curtis and Lemon were being paid more than her, despite them all being leads, she fought to get the same amount on her paycheck. Curtis recalled that her agent approached him to give Natalie a piece of his salary. I don't know why I would do that, I replied, he said, because Natalie's in the movie. I declined, thinking perhaps he could have come up with a more persuasive rationale. Truth is, I had never heard of asking an actor to give part of his or her salary to another actor. Curtis said that Natalie wanted to play that part a certain way and she wasn't getting it. She worked at it very hard because she wasn't allowed or given any indication in the playing of the scenes. She needed help on set. Unfortunately, Curtis wasn't much of a help himself as he was prone to teasing and bothering her in between takes. Crew members noticed they didn't like spending time together for reasons unknown. Director Blake Edwards, when asked if there was going to be a cast party after filming wrapped, answered, Sure, it'll be quite an occasion. Natalie and Tony are going to set each other on fire. During a humongous pie fight scene near the end of the film, over 4,000 cream pies were thrown. Natalie was specifically targeted with multiple pies to the face by Edwards. She choked on a pie that blocked her airway, and Jack Lemon passed out, saying that the feeling of getting lobbed with a pie was comparable to getting hit with a ton of cement. Well, the only time I was that uncomfortable was a film I made called The Great Race, where I had to be covered in pies, and my, literally my entire body had to be covered in pies, and I think we did that for about two weeks. 
So towards the end, you know, the last week, because it started off just with one in the face and then a few more and a few more, and eventually I was just covered from top to head to toe. And so it meant coming in in the morning and just being plastered with the gooey, sticky pies and then staying that way all day. Filming went on much longer than previously expected, and the movie went extremely over budget, up to about $12 million, which is over $113 million today. The cast and crew grew tired of filming... The cast and crew grew tired of filming such a huge and laborious project. Natalie tried to mask her unhappiness. The only compliment she really gave the film was that she was glad to have learned how to fence. Near the end of filming, she attempted to take her life by swallowing a bottle of sleeping pills. She called her friend, Mark Crowley, who later said she almost died. Ever the trooper, Natalie managed to make it to work the next morning. After filming wrapped, Natalie began working on Inside Daisy Clover, a story of a child star growing up in the public eye. Once again, many of the moments in the film were very similar to things Natalie had experienced throughout her time in Hollywood. She said, I have only had this kind of a reaction in one other thing, really, and that was Rebel Without a Cause, where I instantly realized that no matter what, I have to play this part. You sing? What's the matter with you? You want to be a singer or something? What's the matter with wanting to be a singer or something? Don't you want to be anything? I'm going to be kept by some rich, older dame. It happens if you're good at it. Then get to work. Natalie recommended newcomer Robert Redford for the part of Wade Lewis, Daisy's love interest in the film. Natalie and Redford had known each other years before, meeting in high school. Years later, Redford recalled how they met. A bunch of the ballplayers were spared the ordeal of having to go through registration day in the auditorium if they would man the doors. Kind of a duh job, which was fine with us because we didn't want to have to sit through the stiff indoctrination ceremony. There were about four or five doors going all the way around the oval-shaped auditorium, and each door had an alphabetical sequence over it, A through F, G through L. There were two guys at each door, and of course, we were kind of competing with each other to see who would get people into the auditorium fastest, because as soon as you got them in there and shut the door, you were free to split. So we were rushing to get through it, and we were all ready to shut the doors, and this little girl comes running down and wants to come in the door. And I just was a complete jerk. I said, hold on, what's your name? I didn't have a clue who she was. First of all, she had her hair very blonde because she was doing a movie, though I'm not sure I would have recognized her anyway. I said, hold it. And then it becomes sort of this machismo bullshit. Where are you going? She said, please, let me in the door. I'm embarrassed. And then she says, would. And I said, that's W's. That's all the way around the other side. And she said, please, I don't want to cause a scene going in there. And the guy with me started to hyperventilate. He's trying to send me signals that it's Natalie Wood. Anyway, I just continued to just be a jerk and give her a hard time. I said, sorry, name is Wood all the way around. I said, does this give you permission to change your name? Go around to the other side. And then she just let me have it. Got madder in hell and says, you son of a bitch, and sped off. And the guy with me goes, that was Natalie Wood. I said, are you kidding me? And then I was glad I had pushed her around to the side because I had a dim view of movie people. During filming, Redford was impressed with Natalie's work ethic, saying, I wouldn't have expected a Hollywood movie person to be that dedicated to want to go for the craft. And she did. She really worked hard. She got herself completely into the role. Natalie felt like she had gotten back into her groove. Daisy was a challenging yet relatable role for her, and she enjoyed working with Redford. 
Unfortunately, the final product was not what either of them had expected. Natalie's singing was once again dubbed over by Jackie Ward, and a narration she had recorded for the duration of the film was almost entirely cut out. She was disappointed as she felt like the narration was a key part for the audience to understand Daisy's character and mindset. Natalie asked Redford to appear with her in the film, This Property is Condemned, based on a Tennessee Williams play. At this stage, Natalie now had control over the director and co-stars of all of her films, so she set to work to find the perfect director. Redford suggested Sidney Pollock, who at that point was virtually unknown. He remembered telling Natalie, This guy is so hot. If you can get this guy, if you're lucky enough to get him, he's a hot new guy. Which he wasn't, right? He was just my friend. Natalie met with Pollock in her home and went over the script, finally deciding that he was the right choice. She later considered her role as Alva, one of the best in her entire career. What are you looking at? There's nothing there. Only me. Alva, you don't have to pretend. God, Wait. look how wide the sky is. It's perfectly wide. Just as wide as a clean piece of paper. Listen to the wind. Gave me those. I never take them all. Alva, listen to me. When a train really goes, do you know what it says? Broma Celsa, Broma Celsa, Broma Celsa. You are staring straight into my eyes, which is impolite. I leave tomorrow. Broma Celsa, Broma Celsa, Broma Celsa, Broma Celsa. Alva, listen. Nights at Star's boarding house have little or nothing to do with the days. Meals are included, Stop. and modern shine facilities. Stop it. Do you know, if you pinch your elbow, you can't even feel it? Alva, do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes, I know. You're leaving. Uh, Alva, the sky is not white. It's blue. If you pinch your elbow hard enough, it hurts like hell. This... This is not lilac talcum on these seats. This is dust. There is no wind in this car. As a matter of fact, it's hot. Because this car has been sitting here for years and years. Well, I don't care. Why do you do that? Why are you so fanciful? Why do you make everything seem so special? Because it is. Redford said she was incredibly committed to her part and that she was willing to go for it. She allowed Sydney to really work with her. She was very willing to take chances. Pollock became one of Natalie's closest friends and said about her, There was a fragility in her, and the emotions were very close to the surface. Scratch her and get to an emotional color right away. There's something breathless about her, and you feel it. You can feel a kind of quivering just below the surface, a very appealing and vulnerable part of her. Natalie had that quality, along with this volatile emotionalism. Natalie overdosed on sleeping pills again after filming wrapped on this property is condemned, finding herself in an, in, a, in an incredibly deep depression. She struggled when she wasn't filming as she found herself as she found acting as a sort of safe haven. She said, I really didn't know how to be other than acting. Natalie banned mud from her home and hardly ever saw her father. She started taking night classes at UCLA, where ironically, one of her first assignments in English literature was Wordsworth's poem, 
Ode on Intimations of Immortality, the same poem from Splendor in the Grass. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Natalie became involved with actor and later director Henry Jaglom. He was quite a rebellious figure and was very intrigued by all of the Hollywood aspects of Natalie's life. Jaglom also noticed that Natalie hated tension and confrontation, and she had a sort of mask that she would put on that she called the badge, which she would talk about in third person. The relationship didn't last very long, but Jaglom remained close with Natalie and offered her emotional support. She still struggled with her parents, sometimes inviting them over to dinner, even though her psychiatrist had advised her not to. Jaglom said, It would always be very complicated and hard for her to have them around, and yet she somehow wanted to be the good daughter. Her mother's whole identity was wrapped up with, not Natalie actually, but with Natalie Wood, the movie star. Natalie was still partially involved with Frank Sinatra, who often came over to her home. Jaglom said when they were dating, Sinatra had hired goons to keep an eye on her. Throughout her life, Sinatra was extremely possessive over Natalie. Mudd was insistent that Natalie marry him, despite the fact that he was involved with Natalie's friend, Mia Farrow. One of their friends said that Sinatra was like a huge father figure. He was a great taker-carer of people, and I think probably the other part of Frank is that he was probably keeping his options warm with Natalie. She began working on Penelope, about a woman who robs and steals for fun. She wasn't particularly happy with the project and attempted suicide during filming. Many people close to her speculated that old flame Warren Beatty had driven her to do it, though that doesn't seem to be the case based on most accounts. Beatty was looking for someone to star in his upcoming film, Bonnie and Clyde, which Natalie eventually turned down because she didn't want to be away from her analyst, and she found working with Beatty to be quite difficult. It was a decision she came to regret, saying, I love the script and I love the part. The two remained friends. Despite appearing happy and confident on the outside, Natalie felt incredibly insecure about her abilities as an actor. One of her friends said that in Penelope, Lila Kudrova had a small part, and honest to God, Natalie was afraid that she was going to be upstage. She was so in awe of Kudrova. Natalie knew she was a star, but she was unsure about being an actress. When you're unsure in your own profession, and yet you're a goddess, it's really got to be tough. Jaglom said that Natalie had told him that ever since she first became an actor at age 7, she'd been begging for love. She was constantly asked to cry, praised and admit, praised and admired when she did, realized that if she could cry authentically, everyone adored her, and she soon established a connection between love and pain. The summer of 1965, Natalie broke her contract with Warner Brothers and fired her agents, publicists, accountant, business manager, and lawyers. She was even able to spend an entire night alone without anyone in her house, an accomplishment she was incredibly proud of. She flew to New York and took a short vacation by herself, saying, It must sound silly, except to anyone else who never did anything for herself, but to me it was a step-by-step -step progression to normalcy. In April of 1966, Natalie won the Harvard Lampoon's Worst Actress Award for last year, this year, and next. She was the first recipient to ever publicly accept the award. W. Walker Lewis, who was in charge of the entire production, said, We are not going to be vicious or try to embarrass our guests. By agreeing to come up to Boston for one afternoon, she has already showed that she is quite a good sport. 
Around this time, Natalie began seeing British producer slash screenwriter Richard Gregson. She went to stay with him for a while at his home in London in early 1967, rejecting several movie offers and going months without seeing an analyst. Gregson decided to move with Natalie to Los Angeles and restart his career in America. Natalie's next project was Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, a sex comedy, and her first film in over two years. She was nervous, screenwriter Paul Mazursky said, as she was working with a first-time director and the three actors playing leading roles in a movie for the first time. Then she relaxed and was great, and we all knew it was going to work. She got along great with the director and her castmates, Robert Culp, Elliot Gould, and Diane Cannon, and felt very relaxed and happy on set. The last scene of the film of the four attempting to have an orgy was almost entirely improvised. Richard Gregson was having difficulty finding work in Hollywood, as he was often considered very aggressive. Robert Redford offered him a job as a producer on his latest film, Downhill Racer, about an incredibly competitive skier. After shooting for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice wrapped, Natalie, Natalie traveled to Austria to be with Gregson during filming of Downhill Racer. Redford said Natalie helped out and loved doing it. She went around and carried things. It was just fun. Natalie even learned how to ski, but ended up breaking her leg. Natalie and Richard married on May 30, 1969, where the guests included Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, Edith Head, Hope Lang, Roddy McDowell, and more. Natalie soon learned that she was pregnant and was thrilled. Her first daughter, Natasha, was born on September 29, 1969, becoming Natalie's pride and joy and giving herself another chance to start a childhood, Lana commented. Natalie was extremely committed to giving both of her daughters the regular childhood that she never got to have. Natalie said, As a person, one thinks about oneself, and as an actress, you tend to think about yourself to an even greater degree. Then you have a child, and suddenly you're faced with a helpless little being who is utterly dependent upon you. You open up, not only to her, but to the entire world. A child changes your perspective on the world because you are also seeing it through that child's eyes. Unfortunately, Natalie stumbled upon Gregson having an affair with her secretary and the marriage fell apart. Natalie got a restraining order to keep him away from her and Natasha. Lana said that Natalie was really angry. She had people posted outside the house. Seriously, he could not drive onto the driveway. A friend theorized that Gregson may have had the affair as a form of revenge because he felt overshadowed by her stardom. Gregson himself said, Sometimes when we were married, she wanted to be another person the producer's wife, but couldn't. In the end, she was always a star. In a way, Gregson's comments about his fling with the secretary, as he called it, make it sound like he was blaming Natalie for having a career and being successful. Unexpectedly, Natalie received a phone call from Robert Wagner, who was now engaged to Frank Sinatra's daughter, Tina. He checked in to make sure Natalie was doing all right and asked if there was anything he could do to help. Natalie was very touched by him reaching out and began fantasizing about getting back together with him. Natalie agreed to make a small cameo in Robert Redford's film, The Candidate, as herself. Later, she desperately wanted to play the part of the mother in his directorial debut, Ordinary People, but it did not work out. The friendship soon fell apart and the two hardly saw each other in the last years of Natalie's life. Natalie started dating RJ again in early 1972 after he broke things off with Tina Sinatra. 
Wagner said that she bailed me out. I was a financial disaster at the time, what with the divorce for Marion Marshall and back taxes and committing money to an unproduced movie. But off we started again. It was the most highly emotional and most marvelous time of my life. They remarried on July 16, 1972, and spent their honeymoon on a boat off Catalina Island. Natalie was betrayed by Lana, who had sold photos of their private wedding ceremony to fan magazines. The relationship had already begun to fall apart, to fall apart years prior, after Lana had charged thousands of dollars to Natalie's bank account and asked for loans that she never paid back. They rarely saw each other after that. The Wagners moved to Palm Springs and went on a small vacation to England in December of 1973. They entrusted Mud with Natasha while they were away. Unfortunately, Mud used this alone time with her granddaughter to her advantage and began trying to turn Natasha against her own mother. When they returned, they found all of the locks on the doors in their house had been changed, and Natasha had been locked in her room. After that, she was only allowed to visit the Wagners on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Natalie was pregnant again with her daughter Courtney, who was born on March 9, 1974. She started filming the movie Peeper in mid-1974. It was filmed at Fox, which was nice because RJ was working on the towering inferno there, and she could also bring her daughters along. That sounds like some sort of proposal, Mr. Tucker. Something just dawned on me. It just came to me out of thin air. How exciting. Are you thirsty? It's so humid in here, don't you think? No. It's only iced tea. Don't you want to know what's just come to me out of thin air? I am breathlessly awaiting the announcement. It was as you moved your head there. I had this feeling that you were Ellen Prendergast, but it was only a hunch. Do I know you, Tucker, or just your type? I'll tell you a secret. Must you? My goodness, a concealed weapon. It's a terrible burden on me. We must all bear our crosses, mustn't we, Mr. Tucker? The Wagners bought a boat and named it Splendor, after Splendor in the Grass. The family spent a lot of time on the boat and would often invite friends over. Natalie was close with countless names in Hollywood and enjoyed throwing parties for her guests. She considered the boat a safe haven for her and her family. She finally quit going to therapy after 19 years, 10 of which she had spent going to every single day. She genuinely felt happy with RJ and enjoyed being a mother. Her friend said a lot changed when she had Natasha. She suddenly realized she had to provide for her child and she had to account for herself. In October 1976, Natalie was honored with a special tribute at the San Francisco Film Festival, where her vast body of work was being recognized. She was nervous that no one would remember who she was. After a montage of clips from her films played, the applause was deafening. The question and answer session lasted over an hour and a half, but the greatest moment occurred at the end, offstage. Natalie's friend remembered. Her dad, Nick, came up to her at the end, which wasn't like him. I remember he had tears in his eyes, and he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. He had this sweet little Russian accent, and he said, Natasha, I just realized how much work you've done. She was on a high for the rest of the night. Natalie took a part in late 1977 for Meteor, a disaster film in which she played a Russian translator. Her already knowing the language got her recommended for the part by a friend. Before filming, Natalie took classes to hone the language as her parents had never officially taught her how to speak it. This part made it more interesting because it was the first time that I found it really necessary to study it formally, you know, before I just learned it as a child does. 
During filming, Natalie struggled with aging and how she appeared on the camera. She often quarreled with the cameraman to make sure he was shooting her in a flattering manner. There was also a scene in which the actors had to be covered and moving around in a mudslide, which triggered Natalie's fears of drowning and suffocation. And what was it like to do that? Well, it was winter, for one thing. It was very, very cold. The first day, I think, the, the mud was heated, but eventually it, was, it just wasn't possible to keep it um, heated. So it was quite cold. It was also not the way we visualized it. When we read the script, somehow all of us imagined that the mud would you know, just slowly rise up and be, be like that. But it wasn't like that. As you saw, it came at us from all directions, you know, and through the walls and from the ceiling. It was like being in a mix master. So you couldn't really hear anything except this deafening noise of, of the, you know, the mud pouring through. So if anyone had yelled stop or cut or there was a problem, you wouldn't, the actors wouldn't have known. So there was an element of danger. I mean, I, I did feel frightened, I have to admit. She started working on several TV shows and television movies, including remakes of From Here to Eternity, playing Karen, a performance she won a Golden Globe for, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof as Maggie the Cat. Natalie began working on writing a memoir, which she wanted to call I Got What I Wanted. She started taking care of her father while on his deathbed, though he passed away in October of 1980. She gave a eulogy at his funeral and arranged for a final memorial service in Russian tradition. Her friend said that Natalie had a lot of unfinished business, and she really loved him. She just loved him. At this point in time, Natalie felt unsure of herself and her career. Her friend said she was at that sort of feeling like her career was, like her career was washed up. She was a woman who seemed to be profoundly unsure of herself while behaving as if, or acting as if, everything's fine. Great marriage to a great guy, great kids, great house. Sydney Pollock said that Natalie was very fulfilled as wife and mother, but increasingly restless because she was finding it difficult to get worthwhile parts just when she was really blossoming as an actress. And after being put on a pedestal when she was young, she became a victim of changing times, when the new stars were people like ourselves, rather than iconic. Mudd moved into the Wagner home after Nick died, trying her hardest to cause arguments between Natalie and RJ whenever she could. She hated RJ, especially because he was an alcoholic and thought he was a terrible husband to Natalie. They finally threw her out when Mud started attempting to groom Courtney for stardom, and she ended up moving in with Lana and her daughter. Natalie still called Mud every morning. Her next project was Brainstorm, a technological thriller in which she played Christopher Walken's wife. Lana said that Natalie enjoyed working with Walken. He, she had a great deal of respect for him. She felt that he was another one of those really serious New York actors, which meant a lot to her. She started feeling more confident about her career and felt like it was heading in the right direction, though she missed being with her daughters. Natalie felt very comfortable with Walken, and many wondered if they were having an affair. Reports vary, but either way, they became very close and spent a lot of time together. David McGiffer, assistant director on Brainstorm, said that Natalie was really alive, she had a beautiful laugh and a beautiful way of just letting go, and she'd just get all goofy. She was usually pretty controlled, and she'd just get giddy, and it was infectious. RJ was incredibly jealous of Walken and kept a close eye on the pair when they were on set. Natalie's agent, Guy McElwain, compared the Wagner's relationship to that of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The relationships between these three people definitely came to play during the last days of Natalie's life when they were all aboard the Splendor.
In a 2011 interview at the Pong at the Palm Springs Film Festival, Wagner talked about his 1956 film, A Kiss Before Dying, in which he played a psychotic man who kills his girlfriend. I found this excerpt quite interesting and thought I would include it in the episode. It really gives a look into his mindset. About his character Bud, Wagner said, I never thought of him as a villain, really. I mean, he was just trying to keep it going, to get ahead. I never played him as a guy who was a killer or anything like that. He was in love with her, and it was just too much pressure for him. I mean, he only had one way to get up. The details of what exactly happened to Natalie in the middle of the night on November 29, 1981, are unclear. But we have enough pieces of the puzzle to understand what happened. She, Christopher Walken, and Robert Wagner were spending the weekend on the Splendor outside Catalina Island and went out on the town to get wasted. When they came back to the boat, Natalie and RJ had a violent argument. It's unclear whether or not Walken witnessed this. Bruises and injuries were found on Natalie's body afterwards that indicated she had been struck and then thrown into the water, unconscious. When she hit cold water, she came to and struggled to stay afloat as she didn't know how to swim. People on neighboring boats said they awoke up to the sound of two men jeering and laughing as a woman screamed out for help. Abrasions were found on Natalie's legs that pointed to her attempting to get up on the dinghy that was attached to the boat, but that someone was pushing her down as she struggled to get aboard. The next morning, her body and the dinghy were found floating in a small cove quite far from where the Splendor was docked. She was wearing nothing but a nightgown, a coat, and socks, not even her signature bracelet. This negates the story that Wagner came up with, that she had simply wanted to go back on shore. Wagner didn't call the police or Coast Guard for several hours after Natalie had gone missing and didn't seem concerned about his wife's whereabouts. He didn't even go to identify the body, sending the captain of the Splendor instead. Neither of the key witnesses, Christopher Walken or Robert Wagner, have said anything of substance about that night. The autopsy and investigation were botched, most likely on purpose, and we'll probably never really know what happened. Earlier this year, Wagner was removed as a person of interest and the case remains unsolved. If you want to learn more about Natalie's death, check out some of the resources I have linked below. I think Natalie Wood should be remembered for her vibrancy, excellent performances, and the impact she had on those who knew her. She was raised in a traumatic environment and taught to please others, especially older men. Understanding where she came from and all of the anxiety and phobias that she suffered from can help us know her better. Her experiences as a child actor can help us learn how not to treat young actors, and what she went through as a young adult is not something to be taken lightly. Natalie, like everyone else I've mentioned before and will discuss in the future of this podcast, was more than her death. She had flaws, just like everyone else, but she also made so many wonderful contributions to this world. She's an incredibly special person to me, and I miss her every day. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and join us next week when Louise and I will be talking about Natalie's films, her personal life, her co-stars, and the documentary that was made about her a couple years ago. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.